I'm Effie Parks. Welcome to Once Upon a Jane, the podcast. This is a place I created for us to connect and share the stories of our not-so-typical lives. Raising kids who are born with rare genetic syndromes and other types of disabilities can feel pretty isolating. What I know for sure is that when we can hear the triumphs and challenges from others who get it, we can find a lot more laughter, a lot more hope, and feel a lot less alone. I believe there are some magical healing powers that can happen for all of us through sharing our stories, and I'll take all the help I can get. Once Upon a Gene is proud to be part of Bloodstream Media. Living in a family affected by rare and chronic illness can be isolating, and sometimes the best medicine is connecting to the voices of people who share your experience. This is why Bloodstream Media produces podcasts, blogs, and other forms of content for patients, families, and clinicians impacted by rare and chronic diseases. Visit bloodstreammedia.com to learn more. Hello, friends, and welcome to the show. I'm Effie Parks, and I'm so glad you're here. It's funny, I just got off the phone with the father of today's guest, and I was laughing, and I was like, this family is going to think like I am a super stalker or something. You know, I don't know how to explain it, but there are a few families that I've met along this rare disease journey and through this podcast that I just feel so deeply connected to for reasons I can't explain. And this family is one of them. Today's guest you actually heard on a storytelling episode back on episode 109, Big Brothers. Uh, So make sure you definitely go back and listen to that episode too. Today we're, we're talking about grief and the sibling experience of it. He was a big brother to Ben, who had San Filippo syndrome, which is a devastating disease that causes many things and ultimately childhood dementia and death before adulthood, typically. So it's extremely cruel and tragic. And my guest has just such profound insight. And I am really I don't know. He takes my breath away with how he's moved through it and how he's figured out ways to communicate it. And I'm just, I'm really moved by what he has to say. And I think he is a teacher. And that's just another thing about these siblings, right? There's just something about them. I know you're going to love this conversation and I can't wait to share it with you. So please enjoy my conversation with Noah Seidman. Hi, Noah. Welcome to the podcast. Hi, how are you? (laughs) I'm doing well. I'm really looking forward to talking to you. I feel like I kind of know about you already. I've listened to your words. I've read your words. You were on an episode of our storytelling episode a while back, and I'll link that in the show note. And it's just, it's really great to have you here as a guest. Yeah, I'm really excited. I think that while I love doing those pieces where I get to spend a little bit more time rolling it around in my brain. I also really enjoy just speaking off the cuff and seeing where things go. I think it's a equally good way to do some introspection. Totally. Well, I'm sure you're very good at both. Something that strikes me about you so much is just how articulate you are and you just dig deep, I feel like, without even trying. And it's just, it's a really amazing quality. Really? Well, thank you. I, I appreciate your saying that. I hope I'm not going to turn your plans on their head by saying I think it might be a bit of a defense mechanism. 
you know, I was actually going to ask you about that. And maybe we'll get into that a little bit later. But yeah, super interesting. First, I kind of want to just lay out the land. And uh, I want to know about being a big brother to Ben. And maybe what you're thinking about the most lately. Okay, so I, I think it is difficult for me to put really neatly what it was like being a big brother for Ben. It was it was a whole lot of things. And I would say the thing that, that sticks in my mind the most is this idea of legacy and memory and what I'm doing with it. For a really long time, I was super focused on trying to figure out what my brother meant to me and how I could communicate that. And in doing so, I was also really holding on tightly to whatever that idea ended up being. And I almost held on a little bit too tightly. And I think a lot of what I've been doing more recently is trying to take a step back and say, well, Ben meant this to me. And I remember these things about him, but I'm changing. And so the context in which those memories live and those experiences and that meaning is derived is also changing. And so I have to be okay with that. I have to be able to let go of those little bits of, of my brother that I sort of polished and shined to the point where I felt like they were good enough and just let you know him be sort of who he is to me as I change. And maybe that's part of it, right? Maybe, maybe my brother is a great signpost for me because I am going to be changing, but my my knowing him and my experiences with him are these sort of fixed points in my life. And so I can come back to them and I can say, when I was 14, I really, really valued all of the things that I could do for my brother. You know, could I go out and speak on his behalf? Could I fundraise? Could I raise awareness? Could I do this, that, and the other thing? And then as I got older, and especially when I was thinking about going away to college, the things that mattered more to me were the stuff that I could do with my brother right? Could we go tooling around the supermarket in his wheelchair and bump into stuff and get away with it? Because, you know, who's going to yell at the kid and his brother who's <laughs> finally laughing and smiling? We terrorized a star market pretty regularly. <laughs> We'd go in and my mom would peel off to the produce section, but she would give Ben and I three random items to grab all throughout the store. And we would just go full tilt. And this is like, you know, me six foot three in high school like the most athletic I had been going as fast as I could with Ben just cackling in his chair and we would take these corners around aisles up on two wheels and you know arrive at the milk or arrive at the bread or whatever we were grabbing and some poor store employee would look at us and we would just be like sorry <laughs> oh my gosh but so the, suddenly those things mattered a lot more, right? It wasn't, I wasn't really doing anything for Ben. I wasn't helping care for him. I wasn't advancing the research into San Filippo. I was just being with him. And so the value of that suddenly increased to me and I was less concerned with the fundraising that I was doing. And so I guess what I'm trying to get at probably a little bit too long in the, in the making of this point is that I don't know what is going to matter most to me about my memories of Ben in a couple of years, but I'd like to be open to whatever that changing interpretation is. Do you feel like that was when you finally started to live in the moment? Is that what you mean by figuring out what you could do with Ben? Did it take you until you were an adult to really savor 
the exact moment you were in? Yeah, I think that's a big part of it. I think that becoming more and more aware that, you know, we were moving towards an ending and towards a parting meant that it wasn't so much me thinking about what what I can do for him and how I can, you know, maybe even avert sort of this this inevitability of, of his passing through my efforts. It was just how can I be a brother to him? How can I make stuff that is meaningful and matters to both of us while I have the opportunity? So yeah, I think it was it was maturity, it was the progression of his disorder. And I think maybe just a little bit of internal clarity of like it, it takes a lot of money and a lot of fundraising and a lot of luck to move the dial on this kind of stuff. But it doesn't take a ton to make your sibling laugh. And in a lot of ways, there's a lot of value there. I heard you say once just about what you mentioned about the memories that you polished and at those moments or those days that were so difficult or times that you were grieving so deeply that realizing that you had been through the hardest thing that you could ever go through and you still made it over and over and over, that that was such an accomplishment. So if you're sort of trying to break down that polished memory at this point and really just look at it for everything that it is and everything that you remember now, are you still able to pull things like that on those days that are really extra hard? Yeah, I am. And I think that the biggest part of breaking down that particular insight, because I do think it's a good one and a valuable one and has lent me a lot of strength, is to be a little more forgiving of myself on my days of frustration and to say, yes, there were incredibly hard moments and I triumphed over them and I will continue to, and I will have the the sort of faith and the confidence that I can. And there were also moments of frustration where I had to put it, put things down and step away from things and, and just concede that there, there are struggles and that, you know, being equal to them sometimes means knowing when to take a break and give yourself some distance. And so I think what I had tricked myself into doing in in this sort of everything is the hardest thing that you can handle and tomorrow you'll be ready for the next thing is forced myself to always try to be ready for it tomorrow and always try to take on more when I think the truth is a little bit more lenient that yes, you're going to face challenges and they're going to be ever greater because we're people and we love expanding our capacity for things. But there's also time to recuperate and time to shore up and time to turn the lessons you learned into something more actionable. And so I think that really the the tempering piece to that little insight is, is be lenient and be generous with yourself too. What about as a sibling? I know I hear a lot from adults the pressure to be perfect, the pressure to be happy, the pressure to not be a burden. How was that experience for you? And did it remain after Ben's passing or morph into a different way of not being a burden and being a perfectionist? Yeah, I think that it absolutely is uh, is still with me and was a really hard thing to grapple with. It's really hard as a sibling as you, as you mentioned, to look at all of the stuff that is on your parents' plate that's so far out of your and their control and say, well, God, I can't get a C on this math test, right? I need to make sure that I'm doing 
all of the little things that are so, you know, they seem so menial and so unimportant compared to this momentous part of your life that you just want to keep quiet about them. And, and I think it's been true as an adult and a little bit exacerbated by distance from my family and distance from those kind of support systems and friends that know me, but never knew Ben and have only heard about sort of my recollection of him and what I've taken from my experiences. And as we, we sort of talked about, I, I view it in a little bit of a, a rosier hue than it might actually have been. And so it's sometimes really easy for me to push away stuff that I'm struggling with and let myself sort of sink a little bit deeper when it would have taken a, you know, a quick helping hand from a friend to, uh, to pull me out of it. So yeah, I think that, you know, as a sibling, there's a lot of need to just be on top of your own care and your own emotions and know, know how to say, Hey, I'm, I'm having a rough go of things right this minute. I could use a hand or even just report out. I think I was talking with my mom about this a little while ago. When I first moved out um, after college, I didn't call her for really mundane things. Like my window shades were dirty and I didn't know how to clean them because I was a 23-year-old idiot who had never lived on his own, right? And window shades were just kind of always magically clean. But I knew that in my family, there were only problems and solutions. There was no just like gentle griping about the day-to-day minutiae. Because I knew if I called my mom, she would give me the like play-by-play of exactly what I had to do. And that wouldn't have necessarily been bad, but I don't think it was what I was looking for. And it wasn't a piece of communication that we understood. There were no casual complaints in my family growing up. It was either disaster or business as usual. And filling in that middle space of like, I had a shitty day. I don't need you to do anything about it. I just want to talk about it just didn't exist. And so we've had to really build that again. And it's been difficult for all of us because we only problem solve, right? That is how we, we function as a family. We do projects and we problem solve. And so, yeah, that, that part has been the, the weirdest or like the, the least expected hurdle in, in how we communicate after my brother. That's a really interesting perspective. Yeah. You're like on crisis mode 100% of the time. And then all of a sudden, you don't have this need or whatever to be vigilant all the time. That's a real hard stop. And I'm, I'm sure that that probably goes into your personal life too, right? Like, do you feel like you can do the mundane easily with your friends and your colleagues? I think that I am getting steadily better about it, but it is really hard. And in the same way that I'm saying, I don't always look for that kind of problem solving and, you know, disaster response from my family when I call and talk to them. I imagine that the people around me don't always want it from me, but it is my gut reaction to this is going on. How can I fix it? What can I do? Because yeah, it was everything that cropped up merited a response in our household growing up. And so that's sort of all all I know and what we default to. I would say it creeps in a little bit less and less and less as I become more aware of it and actively work to fix it, but it definitely cuts both ways and um, is certainly something that I need to be, you know, thinking about consciously to, uh, to avoid doing when it's not appropriate. What are some of those coping mechanisms that you kind of brought up? Explain the ability and the need that you have to kind of write about it and talk about this stuff so 
wisely and so in depth. How is that something that you also kind of revert to? So I think what I ended up doing, and I can't pinpoint exactly when this sort of transition happened, is I came to the realization that I was going to be vulnerable emotionally around my brother a lot. And obviously, being vulnerable is akin to being uncomfortable. And so I said to myself, like, you're going to have to talk about this. You're going to have to share this. You're going to have to accept it and live with it. And so let's put it out front and let's get really good at talking about it and let's be really comfortable doing it. And so it ended up being that like, I got more comfortable talking about the progression of my brother's disease and my feelings around him than all of the other little things that we're all vulnerable about and that we all feel emotional about. And so I sort of used it, you know, almost as a shield because nobody asks a teenager after they've just articulated how they feel about their brother's uh, inevitable death, if they're doing okay in school or if they're feeling good about making friends or socially or any of those questions. And so I got to say like, okay, here's the one thing that I'm going to be really emotionally open about. I'm going to do a great job of it. It don't bother me about anything else. And so it just like through repetition and practice, it got really easy to talk about stuff around Ben. Not that it's not genuine or honest or, or even emotionally impactful, but it's also in a lot of ways my shield. Oof. No, uh, man, that's hard to hear just human to human, but like as a mom, oh man, to know that this young person is feeling that much pain to have to put up this shield, but not just to hide his own pain, but also because of such strength, right? And the growth, the maturity that comes with living the life that you are living, it has a dual purpose. But the fact that you even had to realize that and that you knew it would work is really, really painful. Yeah, it is really tough. And it's tough to untangle even in the aftermath and, and knowing it, right? Like, I know that what I just told you is accurate. I know that I do it. And it's almost a little bit too good because it works. And so getting away from it is really hard. And I don't necessarily want to stop. Like, I want to keep talking about my brother. I want to keep accessing that emotion and those feelings. And I want to keep sharing it with people because I think it is important. But I also need to catch myself and say, are you attending to the other needs that you have or are you hiding behind this again? You know, it's this weird case of like, I'm doing the right thing and I'm doing it the right way. And so I need to examine the the reasons behind it, right? Because there's the, I want to talk about my brother and share. That's a good reason. I want to deflect from something else. That's a dubious reason. But really only I can dig into those. So it's a, it's a bit of a responsibility and a work in progress. Yeah. I mean, what would you say to that young person who is living the same life that you were living and that you're living now, who is doing the same thing? What are some ways or some pieces of advice that you would have for them to be able to kind of lower that shield or get their real self out? Or what questions do you want people to ask that person yeah, so I think the first thing that I would say, and maybe the best thing to ask that person is about roles. When do you feel like a sibling 
When do you feel like you're a caregiver? When do you feel like you're an advocate? When do you feel like you are just you? Because I think that part of what happened and part of what led me to where I got is I got stuck in trying to be a lot of those things at once. And the easiest one to ignore is just me because it's not really contingent on anybody else. There's no feedback necessarily. So that is maybe a good question to start with. And the other piece of advice I would say is that like, it's hard to go wrong if you're putting it out there, which is going to sound a little bit, you know, nebulous and fluffy. But one of the toughest things is to like, feel like you have to push down this frustration or this anger, or this sadness or this fear, or whatever these emotions are, because you can't cause a problem. You can't face that feeling necessarily. And the, the deeper truth or the real truth is that everything you push down morphs into something worse. You know, frustration turns into resentment, fear turns into trepidation, you know, sadness becomes, becomes uh, melancholy or torpor or whatever it's going to be. And so if you're angry, be angry. If you're sad, be sad. You'll find the support around you and it will make it way, way, way easier to be strong when you genuinely need to, right? Like, I think that's essentially what we're talking about, right? I, I sort of built up a muscle through using it a lot and then can't unclench the fist to do anything else with it. And so the more you flex and the more you relax, you're still going to be strong and you're still going to be able to do all of these difficult things that, that a lot of your peers can't even imagine. But every moment you take in, in stretching and recovering and relaxing is one that's going to make you so much more happy and fulfilled and adaptable and, and ready to take on the next thing as well. If you need to be practical about it too, you know, no matter how strong the fist you can make, if that's all you do, you know, you're going to have some problems down the line. Oof. One of the truest pieces of advice I think I have ever heard and known to be true for sure. How did you learn how to do that, Noah? Because it's hard to realize that emotions are important and moving through them are imperative to your well-being. Did you learn this from therapy? Was this just experience and growth? What were the tools that you needed to have permission to feel? So... Therapy definitely helps. I would say that all of the other ways that I got there are inferior to talking to somebody and getting a little bit of help. But experience is a big piece of it. And I think for me, in addition to the help I got from therapy, I'm just a really sort of methodical person in the way I think. And so when I land on something, I pick it apart. And I think that is what ended up happening is as I got older and more and more self-aware and more interested in understanding not just what I was feeling, but maybe why, I started to look back and sift through things. And, you know, we talked about it early on, writing and speaking were a big piece of how I did that, but they're not the only outlets at all. I, I would say that like, Helping out friends in, in moments where they needed a little bit was a great piece of insight into my own emotions and maybe how better to parse them out. Having a little bit of space from my brother and going away to college was also a great way to do that. Getting a chance to reconsider how I wanted to talk about him and frame him when I met new people was, weirdly enough, a really big peek into, into my own feelings and how I expressed my emotions. 
but really at the end of the day, it's, I think the, the best thing is someone else who can help you ask all of those questions because it's hard to ask them of yourselves. Did I feel frustrated then? Was I sad? Was I angry? Was I afraid? Those are hard questions to, to know to ask of yourself. And so having a sounding board, a friend, a, you know, a large dog to take for quiet walks in the woods and have a one-sided conversation with, like, there's a lot of means to that end. And I think they all start with just, you know, this sort of litany of questions that you can ask at a really steady burn. And you don't have to get a lot of purchase with every repetition just a little bit more insight, just a little bit more honesty and and just a little bit more of a relaxed uh, grip on how you're feeling. It's incremental, right? Oof, I love the way you put that slow burn thought behind it. What do you do when you know that you're going to go into a situation or be around something that's going to bring up something really painful for you? How do you brace for it or how do you welcome it or avoid it? I have no idea. I I really don't. I think that my gut instinct a lot of times is to try to avoid it. Um, and I think that when it's not, I I tend to I tend to tuck things away and like I said before, come back and sort of pick them apart almost clinically until I have arrived at something that I feel like I can I can grasp or understand. But I don't know. I still walk out of the room when someone turns Arthur on because that was what my brother loved to watch. And so I think it's a bit of a mixed bag. It's hard to, it's hard to just attack one or just to take apart one thing because they tend to all be so interconnected. It's easier with family and it's easier with friends, easier with somebody else to talk to. But I think that there's no there's no clean nugget of advice that I can give other than um, it's worth it. How do you think people misjudge grief or what are the misconceptions that you've run into personally that people have about what you're going through or death and dying in general? I think that the biggest problem with grief is that there's no, no amount of experience is applicable. It's sort of just this, this thing that almost defies the ability to be be prepared for it, to use your past to to help you cope or anything like that. It you kind of have to accept that it's it's going to be different, it's going to be new, and you're gonna to have to figure it out. And one of the things that I say to people is I don't think grief gets easier. I think you get better at it. I think that the totality of the sadness and the pain and the loss that I felt when Ben died isn't slowly evaporating over time. I'm getting better at carrying it. I'm getting better at unpacking it where I can and facing it where I can and moving past it when I can't in the moment. I think people think that, or I think that those that try to give advice to people that are grieving are hanging on to the idea that that time will sort of heal it. And I like the I, I like shifting that plan to you improve, right? It's not that your grief goes away, it's that you get better at it. Because then there's some ownership to it and there's some value to it. And there's this ability to like 
grab a hold and wrestle with it and feel like you've come out a little bit more for having done so. Having like a little bit of control in the chaos exactly everything that you can't control right like i don't i don't love the idea that like with time the pain of my brother's passing is going to fade but i do like the idea that with time i will be better and better equipped to to handle all of it and to hold on to the pieces that matter and to let go of the ones that don't and to grow and change with it one of those is static and the other one speaks to me building something and i'd like to try to build something what about regret? How do you deal with regret after a life like this? Even though a lot of the regret might not be true, might not really be what happened or didn't happen. But I know regret is such a wound, its own special kind of demon. And I wonder how how you deal with it. Yeah, I, with difficulty, I think is the most honest answer. Um, like I was saying, uh, more generally with grief, I think also with regret and especially in this space where, you know, in my brain, I can recognize when it is illogical or unfair, I'm sort of beating myself up for no real reason, but it's hard to get there in your gut. And so I've almost have this sort of practice path through the maze of that regret that like when I get stuck in a loop of Oh, I wish I could have like I could have done more for my brother. I could have been there more for him. I could have been more patient and more generous. I could have engaged with him more even as he was struggling. And maybe I could have done more, but I also was you know, was my own person was doing the best I could and make mistakes. And so I have almost this like thought process that I go through when I get in that loop that gets me out of it. And every time I start to feel that regret and feel like I'm getting stuck, I practice that sort of, you know, mental jujitsu to, to get back to a, a reasonable place. And I'm getting better and better at it every iteration, you know, instead of tossing and turning in bed for four hours at night, I've got it down to like a clean half an hour. And so I, I would say that like, Regret is tough, right? Because it's going to sing the sort of dissonance between what your brain and your gut know to be true. And the best way to deal with it is to is to continue moving forward. And so as long as you're making the choices that let you grapple with as much of it as you can handle, and then still take the next step and come back to it later, then you're doing well. What's it been like with the the family dynamic after Ben? Uh, maybe with your sister, Isabel. I know as someone who comes from a very large family, every experience that all of us had as children is so different. Even though we might have been literally doing the same thing at the same time, we have such different stories about it. And I wonder how do you and your sibling kind of communicate or has it brought you closer or is it weird? What's that like? So I would say that it definitely brought us closer. Izzy and I are very, very close, and we do a good job of talking to one another for the most part. We definitely handled things differently, and we definitely have sort of managed to manifest different problems from the same uh, from the same source material. But I think that we did the groundwork when we were really young. We talked a lot. We were allies in all things. When we fought, it was relatively brief. And it helps that we're five years apart. But I would say that 
I don't know. I, I just, I think that the best thing that she does is pass no judgment. And so I try to, I try to do the same, you know, there's no, no right way to maneuver life with a sibling with a rare genetic disorder. And there's no wrong way. And that the two of us are honest about it with one another is more than enough for us to continue to unpack it together and support each other. I love that. Even though, yeah, problems manifest differently from the same things, the sibling experience is still like the only person who knows exactly where you came from, no matter what. Right. And even if there are moments that I don't understand or that she doesn't understand, and there certainly are, I mean, I think that we both just accept them. And that's, that's a really, that's a really generous and really comforting thing to know about about somebody and about your family. Do you feel compelled to be some sort of mentor or leader for siblings of rare? Do you feel like there's something else you need to do? Do you reach out privately? What do these siblings need that you have to give? And do you want to? Yeah, I definitely do. I think that somewhere along the line and it was probably right around when one of the researchers that we were supporting as a as a foundation was getting ready to bring her efforts to clinical trials and i sort of had the crystallizing moment of this might happen and it will be too late for my brother and i had to spend a lot of time reevaluating what my actual motivations were and was I going to find the energy and the drive to keep doing this, to keep fundraising, to keep staying in this space that, you know, causes no small amount of pain to be around all the time? And if so, why? So yeah, I think that I do really wanna wanna be there for siblings and lend sort of the experience of of, of my life and my voice to those that that maybe don't have it all as figured out as I do, which sounds really ironic to say, because I don't really know if I have much figured out. But what I tell to people, because, you know, you've listened to me for a little bit now, I, I talk a lot, and I'm usually good enough at making what I'm saying sound compelling. But take whatever sticks is, is really my biggest message, right? If I say something, and it doesn't resonate with you at all, you are 100% empowered to ignore it. If it doesn't ring true to you at the moment. It might later, it might never. It doesn't really matter. If something I say seems insightful and it resonates and it makes sense to you, then great, use it. Get a little bit of a boost from my experience. But there's no one path, there's no one truth, there's no easy way through this that you can guide someone with experience. You can just say, here's where I came from, here's what I'm feeling, here's how I dealt with it, it worked, it didn't work, or some shade in between, doesn't really matter. Just take whatever sticks. And sometimes the smallest thing, you can get the biggest bang for your buck, for sure. I think about that in the ways of this podcast too, right? It's like a cafeteria. You take what you want and you leave what you don't. Exactly. And everyone is richer for it. Yeah. Right? Like I you know, get a lot of joy and a little bit of therapy about getting to have this conversation with you. And even if only 30 seconds of it rings true to some of your listeners, that's 
you know, that's a pretty good, uh, a pretty good return on our investment. Amen. So as a parent, what do the parents from, from your perspective, what can we do for our kids to make sure that we don't screw it up? How do we make it better for the sibling experience? What should we be most mindful of? I would say abandon the idea that you owe your siblings some normalcy. I think that my parents spent a lot of effort trying to pick a time or a situation where they felt like they needed to deliver for my sister and I the normal experience of childhood or, or something along those lines. Tell me why, because I would think the exact opposite. Like, I'm thinking like, I'm going to go out of my way to make sure my daughter has this or that or does this or goes here because I want her to feel like everyone else too. I want her to have that experience. Why should I abandon it? Because I think you should focus all of that same energy on helping your children articulate what they want, right? I at no point really cared about normalcy. I was in fact pretty happy to not eat out to dinner all of the time. I didn't really care if people stared at me while I was taking a rock around the neighborhood and holding my brother's hand. And so I think that if I had been better at articulating what I wanted and what was important to me, then it would have been easier for my parents to spend their, you know, admittedly limited energy to help me get that as opposed to sort of this, you know, lofty idea of what is normal that that doesn't really it's not really attached to anything meaningful so i would say that like normal is defined by who maybe uh i'm not doing a great job articulating this i apologize yes you are i completely understand right i, I guess what i'm saying is like you know if you're if your daughter says no this is going to be a bad example i'll i'll uh I'll sit, I'll spare you the word salad and maybe be quiet for a moment while I think. Okay, I'm going to fall back on a slightly more general truism and just say, like, I think that more important than chasing normal is figuring out what is important to your kid and helping them pursue it. Because none of us are normal regardless of our experience with rare disease or lack thereof. And if we're trying to emulate something that is as nebulous as normal, then I think some amount of our effort is wasted. Maybe not always, right? Maybe it is important to have, you know, the Chuck E. Cheese birthday, even at the cost of a babysitter for Ben. But better to spend that that time and the energy and those precious babysitter hours on something that you want as opposed to something that just aspires to normalcy. This is what I'm talking about, Noah. Your coping mechanism is so mesmerizing and you <laughs> just really have such amazing perspective and it's so valuable. And that is such an important piece of advice 
to really make sure as families that the siblings are exactly the same as you. They're living the same experience you are as a parent, as a caregiver, right? And that maybe they're also decision makers and maybe they get to know all of the information age appropriately to be able to be as equal of a voice in how the family moves day to day. Right. And it's great training for self-advocacy as those decisions become harder and harder and more and more adult at, as we talked about, a really accelerated pace. If you know how to advocate for yourself over what you want for your birthday or how you want to spend your free time, then you're also going to be able to do the same over the more weighty and more important decisions and also be able to say, you know, it's not embarrassing to me. I don't mind having friends over when my brother's, you know, wheelchair and stand is out. Um, I don't, none of that's important to me. We don't need to chase that kind of normalcy, but, you know, I really want to go on the class trip to go skiing wherever, or I want to do this thing. Um, I guess just part of being a, a sibling of a kid with rare disease is you you have a pretty good filter for what is important to you. And it's easy to feel like you can't stand up and ask for that because there are so many other needs going on that you, you think are more important than your own. And so when that, that sort of focused parent time where your parents are like, okay, you know, your siblings don't exist. We're just going to go do whatever you want to do. You know how to structure that, you know how to ask for it, or you know how to say like, it's fine. Ben can come to the soccer game. I don't care. Because it, it just, it'll lead to a much happier balance and a little bit more fulfillment. And it will also keep anybody from feeling like they're not meeting expectations that aren't there. Okay. I'm putting that in my, in my hard book for sure. <laughs> well, I appreciate it. <laughs> I, I mean, what I was saying before goes for you too. If something doesn't resonate, you're welcome to tell me that I'm out of my mind. Like there's no, Oh my God. There's no one who's not empowered to ignore advice. I, that's like that's always the first piece of advice I send people. I'm like, first off, ignore advice. Yes. Too many people are going to text you. Too many people are going to call you and tell you what to do. Ignore advice. Best advice. Let fall off what you don't want and what you don't need. That is really good advice. Ironically, yes. Okay, well, Noah, I really want you to write a book. So whenever you get on top of that, that'd be great. Also, maybe consider teaching a few classes to parents, <laughs> to grievers in general. I think that you have a really powerful weapon that has come from your shield and your coping mechanism of articulating everything. And it is valiant and it is just really special. It really is. And I'm so honored that you do it. I really am. Well, it was a pleasure to it was a pleasure to come and talk to you. This was a lot of fun and really interesting. I don't know if a book is in the cards. I'm not sure I have that much <laughs> to say, but I will I will definitely keep jumping on opportunities like this one to to share where I can and just have conversations with people. Um, I think that the more information is out there and the easier it is to find stuff like this that you can connect with or see your experience emulated in the better off we all are. So again, thank you so much for the opportunity. And thank you for this, this awesome research and this wonderful podcast that you produce. Oh, my gosh, 
It is literally my pleasure. Okay, I just want one more like laugh out loud memory that you have of Ben that happens to you still today when it comes up or when you're in a place. Yeah, okay. So the the things that made Ben laugh were ones that we always really hung on to. And so discovering a new one was like, uh, it was like payday. It was the best. Um, And I have no idea how I got to this because a lot of my time with my brother was just me sort of babbling at him and seeing what stuck. Um, And so one day in like a really sort of droney, like what you imagine sort of the, the, um, the the like secretary at a, at an elementary school on TV does over the announcements. I just went paging Ben Seidman, Mr. Ben Seidman. And he lost it 100% of the time. Every single time I did it for like four more years after that. And it was like having this magic trick in your pocket that you could pull out whenever you needed a laugh and a smile because it was just guaranteed. And I, to this day, I wish I knew how we got there, but it is like, I can kind of mumble that to myself and crack a smile because I just remember him losing it. (laughs) Oh my gosh. That's hilarious. I love that. I'm glad you have that. Me too. It is funny. It is funny. The stuff that cracks these kids up, man. And it's more than that, right? Like their whole body is engaged with how happy they are when something is funny or when you understand something. It is like the most gratifying experience to watch every single time. Yep, absolutely. (sighs) All right, Noah, thank you so much for being my guest. I can't wait for people to meet you, and I'm sure we're going to hear your voice a lot more. All right. Thank you so much. You have a great day. I hope you've been enjoying this podcast. If you like what you hear, please share this show with your people, and please make sure to rate and review it on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. You can also head over to Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter to connect with me and stay updated on the show. If you're interested in sharing your story, or if you have anything you would like to contribute, please submit it to my website at effieparks.com. Thank you so much for listening to the show and for supporting me along the way. I appreciate you all so much. I don't know what kind of day you're having, but if you need a little pick-me-up, Ford's got you. (laughs) 